And we have Deepika, Dr. Deepika Chopra today, who I am over the moon to have you for, I, I did a panel with uh, Dr. Deepika Chopra and she was so, I thought so great and so uh, full of so much information that I practically begged her to come on this podcast. She is, listen to this everyone, she is uh, an optimism doctor, a happiness researcher, and a visual imagery expert. How is that for a title? For three. <laughs> Mouthful. Yeah. Also, not the easiest name, but you kind of got it. <laughs> Doctor Deepika. 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 Yeah. Chopra. Yeah. We were just talking. You got it, actually. I mean, I have a bad. I, we were just talking earlier <laughs> how I have a I have a really bad bar name. So yeah, I was, just make up new names all the time. But actually, that was really good. I thought I, yeah. I practiced yeah, to make sure. <laughs> uh, now your title. I mean, there's a lot of them. There's three of them, but. <laughs> Optimism doctor. I have not met many. Mm-hmm. I think you're probably one of the only ones. Yeah, have a, you met another? Because I, I actually made up that title. No, myself. I was going to say, to be <laughs> honest, ta- with my you. lawyer has got to talk to them. It's trademarked, man. <laughs> actually, to be Just honest, kidding. no, no, no. You know what? I've really. never met like a happiness doctor, or an optimism doctor. And that's why I was like basically on you, like flies to shit that day, because I really thought a, what you do is fascinating and so helpful for, especially in today's time. So, is there a lot of people who do what you do, happiness? stuff um, as a profession? Yeah. So I don't know many, but I do know that now um, when I was in grad school, definitely not. Um, I have a doctorate in clinical health psychology. And um, when I want, when I was studying happiness and visual imagery and optimism and all these things, it was kind of not really welcomed. It was a little bit like woo-woo for the right. science people. But um, for the woo-woo people, it was too sciencey for what I, what I was doing. So I kind of felt like I didn't really belong anywhere, but I kept going. And now I finally feel like we are in a time and space where like I feel very much like I belong. And it's sort of like this is the time mm-hmm. for um, sort of like all the holistic wellness that's a trend now. But also people are hungry for um, real science-based knowledge on wellness and on these topics. And what's really cool is there's amazing institutions now that uh, devote everything in behavioral science to happiness. Like Harvard has a program. Yale's got a program. Berkeley's got a program. program. Um, we're really amazing researchers are um, are doing these things. And, and doing what with the research? Is it besides research? Are there people going out there in the world to be a professional at teaching happiness then? Or what is... I don't know, actually. Um, I don't know. I just kind of like, I I came into this like very Mm non-linearly. I actually, to start, believe it or not, like everything out of undergrad, I was an investment banker. You were in it for a year. For a year. I lasted a year. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That was my first job. I was a capital markets analyst for an investment, a boutique investment banking firm. You're kidding me. Yeah. And then what? Like you thought, "Mm, not for me. I'm going to become. Yeah. Um, Well, so not even like even less linear than that. I, I knew that it wasn't everything I wanted to do. There were aspects of what I was doing that I loved. And it was Mm -hmm. mostly, I was on like the deal making side. And Mm -hmm. so I loved the cycle, I guess now I can say in retrospect, I didn't know what to call it then, but I love the psychology behind sort of like deal making. Mm-hmm. And I felt like I was really good at it, but the other stuff I could kind of care less about. Right. And I wanted something more. Like I've always been, um, I guess to preface this with, I, I've always been a highly sensitive person <laughs> and Aww. I was that way as a child. Um, and I always sort of like pondered these, like, I don't know, I, I guess I was drawn to like 
I was definitely the most philosophical person like in my family for a really little human. And it was like a lot. It was, it was, it was a bit much probably, but I was always pondering these things yeah. and wanting to know why. And I wanted more. And so raising capital for companies, although it was challenging and there was aspects of it I, I really liked, it wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And I ended up quitting my job on a Monday and I flew to Japan on a Wednesday. And I think I was like 21 at that time because I graduated undergrad a little bit early. I don't know why I was rushing to work. I mean, it was right. so silly. But yeah, but you're obviously an overachiever. I mean, it sounds like that was probably your that was your pattern and your path. When I when I like something. Yeah. Well, right, right, right. Because <laughs> right. I'm definitely someone that um, my family can can attest to. Like, I don't finish a lot of things if I'm not into them. And so right. that's been a criticism on my own part where I will maybe pick up something and not finish it because I'm just I'm not into it anymore. Right. But when I'm really into something, yes, I there's there's really no stopping and it just I I will do everything it's kind of like right now motherhood for me right Right. you're also a new mom yes I have a 21 month old son who is my everything his name's Jag Jag means universe I love that name congratulations (laughs) thank you so anyway yeah I flew to Japan on a Wednesday it was the most um spontaneous thing I've ever done and I'm not that much of like a risk taker Mm -hmm. or that spontaneous of a person but I just I felt called to be there I think it was like a really um, cliche soul searching trip because I felt like I had no idea what I wanted to do, but I wanted to leave the the firm. So I flew there and I spent about a month and a half, almost two months in the countryside. (laughs) And there's a few things I learned there that were interesting. Number one, I learned that I really wanted to work with people and I liked the business side of things, but um, I didn't really know what I wanted to call it, but I wanted to do something more for people, like on a more personal level. Mm -hmm. I knew that. And then the second thing I learned there is, holy crap, I need to be hugged. People in Japan don't hug. They don't touch. And I loved everything about Japan, but like literally a weekend, I was like, why am I feeling so weird? It was like, no one has hugged me. I'm like, we... Oh, no, it's right. That's 100% true, right? I like always tell people, they're like, what did you learn there? And I was like, yes, a lot of the soul searching stuff, but like, sounds crazy, but I learned that like, I need to be touched. The importance (laughs) of like human connection. Yeah. And for me personally, maybe, you know, they have different, I mean, they have such such a rich culture and it was amazing. I love Japan. It was amazing being there, but um, that just wasn't part of their culture thing. And for me, like I'm a really, I'm a huggy person. I'm a, yeah, I'm a very huggy person. (laughs) And so I, it was so funny. I, I like wrote a lot there. And I remember like after a week sort of like reflecting on things. I'm like, wow, like I'm feeling all these things because I haven't touched someone in a week and just like I haven't hugged someone or, you know, haven't had that type of interaction. And so that's always a funny like little thing that I learned there. Right. But I didn't know I was going to learn. So then what happened? You come back to America. I came back to like, America. I want to be a happiness doctor because I'm like so not miserable even, right now. No. Not even that linear. I'm not even there yet. Yeah. Oh. I, I came back and I was like, I got this opportunity um, to work in public health. And so oh. I worked for a company that it was really cool. They were developing a product during the time the avian bird flu was a huge thing. And they were this company that was oh. created this ventilator. Wait, how many years ago was that? Uh, this was like 2000 and maybe six. Oh, okay. Six-ish, wow. yeah. I mm-hmm. think I could be off by a year or so. But um, yeah, it was a great thing. It was a lot of work between the company and like the WHO and like stuff like that. Yeah. But um, these things move really slow. And so I kind of got just thrown back into, like, you have experience in the deal-making side. So I kind of got thrown with the other part of my time 
um, with M&A with the company, so mergers mm-hmm. and acquisitions, which was, mm-hmm. again, the deal-making so interesting, but not really everything I wanted to do. And there, I had an amazing boss who just was like, I call him like the Zen master. He was this amazing person that he just like really took me under his wing. And at all the management meetings that we had, like this was a company that had a basis in um, Chesham, England, and in Seattle. So I was going back and forth Mm. between the two. And we had this really interesting, for all the upper management, um, uh, like away meeting, an offsite meeting in Calais, France. I'll never forget this because he brought in an organizational psychologist for us for fun or also just for, you know, better uh, management skills. And he sort of like really witnessed and watched and he took me aside after and said, you really lit up with a lot of this like sort of the psychological component of everything. And I see that when you are, you know, when we're doing research for the deal making and it's all people oriented. And have you ever thought about he, he said organizational psych, but I was like, no, I, I wasn't even a psych undergrad. Like I don't, but yes, that really piques my interest and you're, you're right. I was really turned on by that. So again, I quit and I came back to, <laughs> back to Japan. No, I came kidding. back to, yeah, no, no, I came back to LA and I went back to my alma mater. I went to UCLA and I knocked on every single door at UCLA Neuropsychiatric Institute and I like begged every single person, can I just volunteer for you? Can I intern for you? I just need to know if like going down this path of psychology is for me because it's a lot of years yeah. of school. A lot of and years. And, yeah. yeah. And I met two lovely supervisors. One of them was research-based and one of them was more clinical. And I worked for both of them for an entire, almost an entire year while I was doing all the prerequisites um, to apply to grad school because I wasn't a psych undergrad, so there was a lot of classes mm-hmm. missing to apply. And I completely fell in love with the obviously the clinical part. Um, I liked the research part too, but it was the clinical part. And the first job I ever had with that was I worked with OCD patients, which was so interesting. Oh, It was so interesting. Wow. And um, it was kind of the first place that I learned that like sometimes the things that you think you should do intuitively um, are actually not the best things to do treatment-wise for people. So a sort of little quick example on that is um, with the OCD patients we were working on, these are severe OCD patients that um, UCLA has a great program, and there's something called exposure therapy. And so intuitively, when someone was, you know, having a lot of anxiety, and that's really saying it like... you mildly? Yes, yeah. mildly. I, was like, I forgot the word mildly. Thank you. Um, intuitively, you're like, let's take away this thing that's making them anxious. Like, that's what I would think to do. But in exposure therapy and what I was actually there to do was to keep them in it and sort of like essentially putting someone through like their worst fear and exposing them to it in like a um, safe space, in a controlled environment. But it was sort of this first really important lesson that I learned, A, that like, wow, like real psychological um, disorders are there Mm -hmm. and people are really struggling. Like it's not just, I mean, I I watched things on OCD like in movies and they like romanticize it, you know, like there's... Or was people, it The Aviator, right? That movie about... Right, The Aviator. Yeah. Right, right, right. With um, Leonardo DiCaprio. Yeah. I think also what happens is people say it like in a fleeting way. Like I say it. Yes. But myself, like, I'm like, oh, I have, yeah. so, I have such OCD. I have to fix this. Right. I have such OCD. That's why I got to... Yeah. But like it's... You say it very flippantly. Yes. Yeah. And we, we do that with depression too. We do that. And right. I think the reason we like do I'm that... I'm so depressed. Yeah. Right. 
And I think the reason we do that is because all of these psychological, we categorize them as disorders and they really don't have to be called disorders. Um, but all of them are literally just based on real emotions, the whole spectrum of emotions we all feel, but they're just to what degree mm -hmm. and you know how much they're impacting their life and stopping them from living a, um, a functioning life. Right. And so we all do experience- A happy life. Right, yeah. right. And we all do experience all those things. Like we experience- some of the things that go into diagnose, quote unquote, someone with depression, we've all experienced all those things. We've all experienced, you know, some of these, like me, I say it all the time too, where I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm air on the side of OCD a bit, you know, it's, yeah. it's becoming a mom. But when you really see someone going through it, you really respect and you're humbled and you're like, okay, this is real. Mm -hmm. And my first day, first ever day, just this little intern volunteer who had like no experience um, was to take my patient at the time down to Starbucks in Westwood and she, her type um, of anxiety was related to uh, just touching objects and things that um, hers was very specific, but it was like, she thought there was like blood everywhere. Like little, there might be someone's blood or someone's mm -hmm. bodily fluids. So she places. was scared to touch certain things. Yes. And so, you know, we went to Starbucks and I opened the door for her. I went in, she went in, we got our drinks, we came out, um, and all of a sudden, this is a very crazy story, there was a shootout in Westwood where there were like police everywhere and oh they told gosh. us to get down on the floor, and this is my first day with this With this patient. OCD patient. Yes, yes. Who was scared to be out on a, on a yes. good day even. And now wow. I'm scared, obviously. I'm trying to be like, okay, we got this, but we're on the oh, floor, God. like face in the pavement. Um, you know, like I'm like kind of like looking up, like making wow. sure when can we go, and then the police officers sort of signaled to us after a little bit of time. I don't even know how much time went by because I was also like, what is going on? And he said we could leave. So everything somehow was under control and we started walking away and she was really, her anxiety was very elevated. And so I was asking her, are you okay? Like checking in about the experience. And all she kept saying was when we left, like you left and your hair is down and my hair is down and the hair blew my hair blew and it touched the door. And do you feel nervous about the door? Because I saw a red spot on the door and I'm pretty sure my hair touched the door. And then my hair blew into my mouth. She didn't even know we just went through like this whole hold up or she did, but that didn't, that's not what bothered her. Her hair had touched the door frame of Starbucks and then the wind blew it in her mouth and she thought maybe she had someone else's blood in her mouth. Oh my God. That's And so that really put things in perspective unreal. for me. Yeah. Yeah. And the work that I ended up getting to do there for a year was incredible. So and that was really like your breakthrough moment, yes. so to speak, as a optimism doctor, really, like in what and like how to heal people like behaviorally, I would imagine. Yeah. So it was mainly more just like, hey, I really want to do this. This is so interesting. And after being there a year and I got to work with her particularly for the whole year and I did like home visits with her and I like something that we were doing and I can't take all the credit, like I was taught it and, but something I was implementing with her like was changing her life. She was able after some time to like go, there were things that she couldn't do that were so sad to me. Like she couldn't date and she couldn't go to her parents' house and she couldn't sit on the couch. She couldn't buy, like when she bought clothes, she would wash them first and like just all these things she couldn't right. do. And after like working with her, I realized like we made so much progress and her life was starting to change. And I was like, this is what I want to do. But was it, okay. So what you, what you were doing with her at that point, I guess, wasn't yet what you're doing no, now. Not right? at all. No. So like that's like, so, but that's still like changing or helping people yes. with their behaviors. I definitely right. found at that moment, like this is my calling. Right. I applied to grad school right away. 
And I got in, I did my master's and then completed a doctorate. And throughout it, while I was in school, learning about all the different Mm. theoretical perspectives and doing all my clinical trainings and hours and hours and hours with patients and clients, um, I started to, I was really interested in the science of the brain. And I was really interested in sort of everything I kept coming up with when I was doing this research and, and looking at all the research already been done before me was that our brains are anticipatory organs. So everything about our brain is like our brains are acting in the future. When we see something, our brain is actually telling us what we see before our visual cortex actually sees it. So everything about our brain is in anticipation of something and it's the most anticipatory brilliant organ. Mm -hmm. And so I started to think like all these therapies that I'm learning to do with people that are really past driven, they aren't really speaking to me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like you know, within it, like, sure, a lot of it was really useful. And I credit everything to having done a doctorate program and having all those hours. And I think you really do need that when you're working with people. You can't just be like, I want to work with people, which a lot of people do these days as coaches. Right. But um, as coaches, I, those are the key yeah. Word, yeah. And I, I really like learned so much from there. But what I also learned throughout all the hours and years of the program was that something was really missing. And I've always been someone that was raised kind of to think about the future. Mm-hmm. Um, and also a lot of my, my father and mother, they're both pretty optimistic people. And when I started like Are they doctors or? Um, no, okay. which actually is another interesting thing. People are always thinking that I am Dr. Deepak Chopra's daughter. Right. That's I do know I him. <laughs> I do know him um, because funny story, my dad and him, both live in Southern California, and in the 80s, they were getting each other's mail. People mis- has mistake, <laughs> so we became family friends. But um, and that's funny. Yeah. So yeah. we're yeah. Uh, my dad's name is Deepak. Too. Are you kidding? Yeah. Me? That's yes. So do- Dr. Deepak Chopra, Dr. Deepak Chopra, and now Dr. Deepak Chopra. Yep. So you could understand why there'd totally. be some kind Absolutely. of like confusion, right? And especially for like what I do, you know, I'm less spiritual, but. Um, you know, right. But you're still in the same things. vein for sure. Right. And so basically I was really interested in like, I started deducing things down to like the way people have emotions or their feelings are all pretty much deduced down to like something they're expecting to happen. So if you are expecting something that could be in, in a future moment. So that could be in a minute from now, five minutes from now, a month from now, a year from now, if you're expecting something bad to happen, you have a negative emotion. If you're expecting something good to happen, you have a positive emotion. Mm -hmm. So I started getting deeper and deeper into it, and I started coming up with, we don't always get what we want, but we always pretty much get what we expect. So our brains are Mm. so efficient Mm -hmm. that a great example I always get, or I think it's great, maybe it's not great, but um, when I'm speaking to a large group, you be the judge. (laughs) When I'm speaking to a large group of people, I always ask, I'm like, how many people here want to win the lottery? And pretty much every single person's hand goes up. Everyone mm-hmm. wants to win the lottery. Okay, from a scale of one to 10, like how badly do you want to win the lottery if you were given the chance? 10, nine, you know, I want to win the lottery. Who, who wouldn't? Mm-hmm. So all these people that really, really want to win the lottery, how many of you guys bought lotto tickets today? None, zero hands. But I'm not surprised because our brains don't expect to win. So we don't take the action to put forth to do anything that puts us in a situation that we can win. That's so true. That's right. So kind of like that is right on the heels of why people and why it's so researched. It's, it's, it's been proven that really how you visualize your future or yes. yourself is what manifests itself. Yes. 
So there's this trigger word right now that for a while I was a little bit like irked by it, but now I'm kind of loving it. Um, so I did my dissertation um, many years ago now, almost 10 years ago now, on this idea of evidence-based manifestation, all about optimism and using visual imagery as a tool to increase people's optimism. Mm -hmm. So to increase people's positive thoughts about the future, mm -hmm. which again could mean one minute from now, five minutes from now, or like right. a year from now. And then over the course of the last couple of years, it's been sort of this idea of manifestation has sort of like really been coming up. And maybe it's because we live in LA, mm -hmm. but I think it's starting to come up in a lot of places. Like there's even, you know, this idea of manifestation. I grew up um, listening to uh, the work of Abraham Hicks, you know, the no. law of attraction. Oh, law of attraction, yeah. of course. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Uh, my best friend's mom was super into that. And she used to give me tapes, like cassette tapes, and then it was CDs. And I would listen to it. And that was really popular. It still it was, is, actually. It's still really it's, popular. It's still really popular. Totally. And they wrote a book called Ask and It Is Given. And it's kind of the basis of what every sort of person I've met in like doing manifestation work, mm -hmm. sort of, it's what the secret was based off of. Right. Um, but that was like the, the first work. And um, so I love that stuff, but I, I'm also someone that is a, as much as I am someone that loves holistic and spiritual things, because I have such a big part of me in that. And I think maybe it's because of my culture or how I was raised, but also I'm someone that has an equal need and desire for like, why? and the science behind things. And I think that's literally why I do what I do because I was raised like that. And then even not just from my parents, but I was the only one listening to those tapes because my best friend's mom introduced mm -hmm. me to them. But I wanted to know why, because the way in which Abraham Hicks sort of, you'll see when you look it up, but gets their message is very, I wasn't down with it then. I had to ignore that part. Mm -hmm. It was like a spirit sort of named Abraham talking to them, right? Right, right? Which now I'm much more of a spiritual person, but as a younger kid, like in high school, I was sort of like, I mean, I'm getting a lot out of this, but I like don't want to focus on where it's coming right. from. And you so, like the overall philosophy yes, of it. Yes, it was but actually changing my life. Yeah. And, um, and so I wanted to know why. And I think when I was, it was the perfect opportunity when I was in the doctoral program and I was studying sort of the brain and behavioral science, like I started to understand why. Okay, why? So again, expectation, the brain being this anticipatory organ, um, self, things like self-fulfilling prophecy, um, it's so all rooted. So let's just break this down. Cause, yes. So you're, so basically it's based on um, self-fulfilling prophecy. Like, yes. Okay. Um, expectation, um, visualization. Yes. And what was it you're going so to say? So it's all it's all sort of this idea that we have a limited uh, availability of attention for our brain. Mm -hmm. People think it's kind of unlimited, but actually it's limited. And so it's this idea of like finding a way, like using your brain as a tool, and finding a way to put into your brain the type of attention you want it to focus on. Mm -hmm. So an example I like to give. I'm all about these like really little sort of tangible examples because I think this stuff can get kind of heady. Absolutely. That's what um, I like. I want, this is what this whole podcast okay. is about. I want tangible examples okay. where people then can understand it and yes. apply it. And okay. that I need those too, myself, like to understand right. these things. So and go so, for it, Deepaka. This floor is yours. <laughs> so, um, Deepika. Deepika. Yes, I know. Tricky. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so it's kind of like an example that for me was really big that I sort of was working with, because, you know, I live in LA, and, like, when I got my first car, um, I got my first car, and all of a sudden, it was a pewter color Tahoe, 
Do you remember the ta- like Tahoes were really big? Yeah. They were like a smaller version of a suburban mm-hmm. Chevy Tahoe. And um, I went out on the freeway and I was driving and all of a sudden, everywhere around me, parking lots, freeways, everywhere I was, everyone had the same color Tahoe. Mm-hmm. And I was like, God, did I just pick like the trendy car or like what's going on? No, they were always there. It's just my attention now mm-hmm. was drawn and focused on this pewter silvery color Tahoe. Mm-hmm. And so I use this example all the time or this other example where I'm like, tomorrow I want you to focus on blue shirts. I just want you to wake up in the morning and I want you to think really hard and visualize a blue shirt, someone wearing a blue shirt, you wearing a blue shirt. You go out in the world and all of a sudden all these people are wearing blue shirts. Yeah, everyone's not, wearing blue. Right. It's not because I paid them around you and I want to make my point. It's because the blue shirts were always there. It's just you weren't attuned to it. Right. Your brain wasn't focusing on them. Right. So it's, it's basically like I was going to say, it's wherever your brain, whatever your brain focuses on, focuses on gets the attention. Yes. And therefore that's what kind of becomes the big thing in your, in your space, in your life. And then further than that, our brains like to be right because we're efficient, right? Mm -hmm. The more we're right, the more we're going to focus on something. Mm -hmm. So that goes for negative thoughts as well as positive ones. If you're always thinking, if you have a core belief about something um, and it's negative and it's maybe your core belief is you don't deserve love or you don't like yourself. Like people have that core belief Mm -hmm. and they go out in the world and they're constantly finding evidence to make that true. Mm -hmm. And I'm not surprised by that. They have a whole list of evidence because our brain is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Our brain wants to go out and seek further evidence to make this thought that we think about so much and spend so much of our attention on true. True. So it's this cycle. Mm-hmm. And so my point in all that was I was understanding all of that in my graduate program and with the people I was seeing and the tools that I had at my availability at the time. And I could pin that, pinpoint that out and sort of be like, okay, yes, cognitive behavioral sort of strategies say that you're thinking this because of this and mm-hmm. you have this negative belief because of this. But I was always kind of stopped with like, then what? Mm-hmm. These people are coming to me and they're sort of like, this isn't working for me. Mm-hmm. And I've been doing this for so long. And maybe they had gone through a whole other part of therapy that was more like Freudian based. And they could even say like, I know I'm this way because of this relationship I had with my father or blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. And they knew that. And I think that's really useful. And I'm not saying take any of that away. But I was at a point where I was like, okay, like then what? So it's not working for them. And I would always go to my supervisors and I'm like, I want to give them something that actually works. What can I do that's real? And I also wasn't really a fan of sitting across the room from someone and sort of only offering like um, being a mirror and sort of saying like, well, yeah, I, I... I hear that. I hear you're feeling sad. I know. And, so, then, and then what? Exactly. Right. Exactly. Well, that's that's a lot of what happens with a lot of therapists, right? Right. You go, that's what, yeah. And they're in, and then I see I have friends all the time who who are like, "Where are you going now? Well, I'm going to therapy." I'm like, "You've been for the last seven years, and like nothing's getting. I mean, it just becomes part of your day to day schedule right. or your weekly schedule, but they're not getting anywhere. Yeah, because and I, it's, exactly. it's the whole now what thing, right? The now what? And so, and I am not again discounting because I think there's so much benefit in therapy and also just giving someone a space to a safe space to do that and to interpret things on their own. But for me personally, I didn't feel like I was best at just being that. What I wanted to offer was the now what. And so my whole, everything shifted for me around my like, so after my master's, but around maybe my like second year of uh, my doctorate, 
and I started getting really deep. And we talked about this before. The only sort of like at that time, the only sort of research I could really find in all of this was in sports psychology. Mm -hmm. So that kind of became, and particularly golf psychology, because it is a mental game. Mm, It's a mental game. And so I did so much, just like basically my whole project was I took all the research that was out there and put it all together Mm -hmm. and made like a, I deduced all this stuff from all this research. What did you find? What were your findings with all the stuff that you found? So I really focused, you had to be really specific in what you focused on in in your dissertation, but I really focused on this idea of first why it was important, everything we're just talking about Mm -hmm. now, um, why it was important to even think about the idea of positive directed thinking or optimism Mm -hmm. versus pessimism. Um, And then further, I really wanted to look at this tool that I had been studying and seeing all this science research on visual imagery and visualization using all your senses as a tool to increase that, Mm -hmm. to shift your thoughts and really to shift your expectation. Since that's sort of where I thought, to me, that's the secret, Mm -hmm. is uh, less about, I mean, sure, the wanting is important, but it's how do you change the expectation? How you, so it's about changing your expectation. Yes. So I always, when I work with, first of all, I have to like preface this with, um, I feel like it's almost like a public service, is that PSAs? Yeah, yeah. public service. Um, yeah. To say every time I speak about optimism, I have to always like preface with, I'm not speak uh, to me when I'm saying this from my point of view, I don't define an optimist as someone that's positive all the time. And that's like really important. And a true optimist is someone that sees roadblocks and the setbacks. They're fully aware of them. They're actually so aware of them Um but they see them as temporary and something that they have the ability and power to overcome. And that's an optimist. A pessimist, on the other hand, um, or someone more pessimistic, I can't just call them a pessimist, someone more on the pessimistic side, sort of, yeah, spectrum, is someone that sees those same roadblocks and setbacks and they see them as real problems, static problems that are not going to change and they're permanent, and they don't have any ability to sort of like overcome them. You know, this sounds a lot like, it sounds a lot like mental performance coaching Mm -hmm. because it's the same stuff that I talk about and learn Yeah, because it's really about having like a fixed mindset or like uh, an elite mindset. And I'm just going to compare it for a second. Like, and that's like pessimist or optimist. Like, do you see yourself as growing and Mm -hmm. you can, you kind of can jump over that hurdle or do you see it like, as you said, like a pessimist who's like right. fixed and this is what it is. And right. like, I guess my question is how, what do you do in, in your, in your world? What are the, what are some behaviors or things that you can work? How do people change that? How do you become, how do you go from being a pessimist mm-hmm. to being an optimist? So first of all, I also have to preface it with, um, I have an optimism scale that one of my like types of sessions that I work with people on is having them uh, answer a set of questions mm-hmm. And then I can look at it and really say how optimistic they are. So I truly believe we all have aspects of pessimism and optimism. So it's actually not really fair for me to say you're an optimist or you're a pessimist. But people sway to one side versus the other. They do and in different realms. So I can say Mm -hmm. like I'm – I think of myself as a pretty optimistic person in a lot of realms. When it comes to medical things or my health, I'm Woody Allen. Yeah. Like right. I'm Hyper- literally, yeah. I'm so pessimistic right? and I know exactly why, but I'm always trying to work on it. I'm working on it just like all my clients are working on different things. Um, right. I too am a human and working on it. I'm not like a preacher and I'm going to say that I'm like the most optimistic person in all realms. Right. Um, 
And I know why, because I collect evidence left, right, and center about all these like crazy one-off random health things that happened to me. I was just telling you about my pregnancy where, you know, I threw up 30 plus times a day until the day I delivered and that's called hyperemesis gravidarum. And I was told less than 2% of the population of pregnant women have it. And I was not surprised that I had it. Right, right, right. But (laughs) that's just me feeding into, there's also, I'm also 35 years old, knock on wood, and like a pretty healthy person. I don't have right. any major health concerns. And I often forget that. I don't focus on that, right? right? I focus on the weird, random, one-off things. Right. Instead of focusing, the majority of my life is I experience positive health. Right. And so... But you focus... It, 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 what gets exaggerated yes. or exacerbated is that. So how do you change that? Back to my question. Yes. How do you get better at that? I know there must be some kind of tricks or mm-hmm. behavioral tricks, I should say, that you can work on. Yes. So that is what we do in my practice. But also I can say a couple things because I like we could only we could talk here for hours about that. That's I'm fine with do. that. No. <laughs> <laughs> but um yeah, so a big thing for me is um I like things that are measurable. So we really work with not just on the whole of like how can I be more optimistic uh in general. It's more like Here's a certain core belief that I have, Mm -hmm. and it's a negative one. So let's say, for example, someone that we use the example of someone that at their core belief, they don't really like themselves. So they actually have a core belief of, I don't like myself. Um, Another thing I'm going to say that might be a little controversial uh, these days, um, but I fully plant my feet firmly in this statement. I don't believe in blanket affirmation statements as being beneficial or good to everyone. So... People talk about affirmations mm-hmm. all day long, and it's a big thing right now. And I, I believe they're very, very big. they're very useful for a very small group of people, which is someone that um, maybe just needs a little boost, but they're pretty they're doing really well emotionally mm-hmm. um, and mentally. Um, and so, like that's a good point. So, yeah. affirmations you think work when you're already emotionally at a certain place. So, I think affirmations, and I'll, I think affirmations work well when you believe them. So if you're someone that your core belief is, I don't really like myself, and then someone tells you and prescribes you like their way, and this is why sometimes like the coaching thing can be some, there's some amazing coaches out there, but sometimes I think like the majority of who I've seen, and maybe I haven't seen enough, but of like life coaches or people working with like- They can can hang a shingle on their door and call themselves whatever, right? Yeah. Or they don't even have to do that. They can just be like, I- I'm a life coach today. Right. Right. (laughs) And um, I think the problem with that is, I think that's great. Like, it's, it's amazing that, that people can do that. But the problem is, I think a lot of them, the tools they use are affirmations. And some people that are coming to them are people that actually, like, are not in that small population mm-hmm. that are, like, doing really well. And they don't – so basically, um, let's say this person, like we said, for example, I don't like myself. That's their core value. And then someone, you know, prescribes them, I really want you to – every morning when you wake up, I want you to look in the mirror – put post-it notes on the mirror. And I want you to say, I love myself. Mm-hmm. And then I want you, before you go to, ne- to, to sleep at night, to look in that same mirror when you're getting ready and you're brushing your teeth. And I want you to say three times, five times, seven, whatever the number is, I love myself. That is probably the worst thing that person could do because our brains are efficient mm-hmm. and powerful. And the minute you say, I love myself, but your deep core belief is, I don't like myself, it starts coming up with every single possible evidence of why that's not true. And you feel shameful and guilty and um, just like you're lying to yourself and all the other evidence oh. comes up. Mm. What I would rather them do, and so this is something that that 
I, that we would work on um, if I was with this person. Um, I put them on a spectrum. I'm like, how much do you not like yourself? Okay, it's a 10. We draw a line. They're already over here. Mm -hmm. be, saying I love myself would be at zero all the way over here, right? Like It's kind of like when you're driving a car super fast down the highway. And all of a sudden, you just like make a turn, a U-turn. You're going to crash. Mm -hmm. You have to slow down, make a turn. You can't just like go from zero to 60. Yeah, yeah, we're not like in Fast and Furious right. here. We don't all drive like Vin Diesel. Right, exactly. Um, we're going to crash and <laughs> burn, right? Right. And so it's the same thing. I'd rather, I would like to ask them, you know, if you could think of one thing, just one thing that you kind of like about yourself, like in a very casual way. And they might be like, yeah. Okay, and, I'm, and I say, I'm not taking away from you this core belief that maybe you spent 40 years working on mm -hmm. that you don't like yourself, and you probably have tons of reasons why. And let's just keep that there. We're not going to disprove that right now. But can you just tell me one thing you kind of like about yourself and, like, make it specific? And if they're like, well, I really like how loyal I am, or I like my sense of humor, or I tell a good joke, and then I ask them from 1 to, one to 10, how much do you believe that? So how much do you believe you're loyal or a good friend? Oh, I believe that like eight. My rule is if you believe something, a statement more than seven out of 10, that is your affirmation. I would much prefer that they look in the mirror three times and say, I love how loyal I am. The more that they're going to say that and put that attention in their brain mm. that's true and sincere and believable, the more evidence they're going to start collecting to prove that, to continue to prove that to be true. And the more they're filling their brain up with that, the more they're going to the right over there to I like myself, but they're going slowly. And once you sort of start changing the direction of your car, even if you're traveling slow, the more you're going down that highway, the faster it starts getting. And you will reach that, but we're not trying to just make a flip into something that's completely like unbelievable. Right. That's a great, I like that. I think that that makes a lot of sense because like, Again, it's about authenticity, right? Yeah. And there's like meaning behind it. It's not like, okay, I love myself. I love myself. Right. It sounds very like, it just sounds very trite yes. and arbitrary in a way right. versus like really kind of digging deep and thinking, hmm, because there must be one thing about everybody yes. that they actually makes them special or like that actually they can find. Right. And it can be so small. It can it be can tiny. And it can be something, you know, I prefer it to be something emotional but it can be something physical yeah like you could start there if that's all somewhere someone could start right and so I think like the, that and that's a behavioral change and that's really like shifting so yeah this is about the long run right it's like the and long like, haul it's not yes. just short it's not about these yes. like you know short-term gratifications but making a real change yes. over time and 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 the, and it lasting so that's and a, like that's a good one and I'm all for like you know like I said I listened to tapes of the law of attraction since I was in high school but um I'm much more about like, sure, I, I love to ask a higher power or the universe for something I want, but I'm much more interested in the you in universe. Right. Like ask it, totally put it out there. But like we have to do a lot of work and you have to do a lot of work mm -hmm. to realize that. And that's a hundred percent true. People think if they just put it out there, well, yeah. I asked for, I, t I asked God right. for this, but that's not enough. No, You're right. Like, because what do they actually believe and what do they expect? Absolutely. And Expe where, it goes back to, it goes ex back to the expectations. expectations. Everything yeah. always goes back to the expectations. So then how about the idea of like fake it till you make it mm -hmm. or believe it to achieve it? Right. What do you believe about that? Do you think that works? So I think there is a time and place for that. And I especially saw that to be true, um, in the clinical practice I was at okay. with like a population that was already emotionally at a place at a certain place is what no, you know. Oh. I actually saw it with a population that was like a little more, um, unwell. 
in the sense of like, there was so little they could actually come up with, like a believable thing oh. that was positive. That, um, and I like the fake it till you make it with an action rather than like a thought. So like, like having them do something that um, maybe made them feel better, like taking a walk um, before having them like fake an actual like, I, um, you know, can lose weight. And I think that I deserve to, like my body deserves to be healthy. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like I instead know. of thinking like, doing a switch that like required their mind or their thought or their right. belief so it's to an shift. action and yeah. action that maybe like I was giving them actions to do that after. And it's sort of manipulative what I do, but in a positive way. Yeah. It's like, positive manipulation. It is. And like sort of maybe after like a few weeks of us doing that, I could use that as evidence for them to show them like, but you've been walking. Right. And you said you couldn't and you are. You know, something little that disproves. First of all, I have to I have to help them realize and prove to them that they can actually do something. Yeah, do it. Do something that they think that they can't do, or they can change a thought. Because a lot of people that come to me, obviously, just every human kind of at some point believes that like I just think these things and I can't control it. Mm -hmm. Or like I just feel this and there's no way I can change it. Like I am sad, or like I think that I'm not lovable and I know that I'm not. And what do you mean I can change it? Like my thoughts, I don't choose what goes in my brain. They just come, they happen to me. So first I have to have someone prove to them with evidence that like they actually can change their thought or do something differently. And another like example I use when it's like really, I, I, if someone like writes with their right hand mm -hmm. and they've been writing with their right hand their whole life or whoever, whenever they started writing. And then I say to them like, here, pick up the pencil with your left hand. I want you to write your name or like the word the with your left hand. It can be done. They can do it. It looks ugly. Yeah, but it's still they can do it. Yeah. And then I say, imagine if you if something happened to your right hand and you had to write with your left hand. Do you see how like you wrote the, it may not be pretty, but do you see that if you did that every day mm -hmm. or 10 times a day for a certain period of time, it probably would start getting pretty, right? So, right. So again, I think it's like, it's practice mm -hmm. with everything, like your brain. You 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 train your brain. Yes. And you practice. I think it, so. It's about really like practicing the you know the, the the affirmation that is very specific. Yes, that's believable. It's but that's believable. It's about acting as if by doing an action, not just yes. sit, just. So there has to be something. So like, how about this whole visual? You said like a visual imagery. Yeah. Where would that be? Like, I'm gonna give you an example. Like, if I if someone wanted to lose. 50 pounds. I'm just making this yeah. up. Okay. Um, and they gained, they gained 50 pounds. They want to go back to where they were. Would a good visual be to take, get pictures of how they looked when they were, when they were that way and then put them around their house. So they, they remember themselves as they were, would mm -hmm. that be considered that or. So I love that you brought this up actually, because this was an exact patient I had when I was at Cedars. Oh. And I used something that again was kind of like a visual manipulation manipulative way of having them visualize something. Okay. So um, I think for people that are sort of like higher functioning, emotionally speaking, mm -hmm. if you ask someone to visualize something, a lot of times they can. They can visualize like this goal or, um, you know, this thing that they want. Um, but someone that's a little bit, you know, they're stuck. They're stuck deeper. Mm -hmm. um, what was amazing, again, about going back to like having clinical background is you got to work with patients that like it was the hard stuff. Mm -hmm. So when you're working with a population now, like I work with a population now that's like 
more higher functioning emotionally Mm -hmm. and more like everyday people like you and I Mm -hmm. that want to optimize their life, it's a lot easier because you already are there, but you can visualize. So I always love this example. This just reminded me of this, this patient I was working with who wanted to lose 50 pounds, but it was so unbelievable to her. She had been overweight for so long and there was a lot of other things happening with core beliefs of, you know, not really liking herself and not uh, feeling that she was deserving. And so when I asked her, like, you know, to visualize being 50 pounds lighter, she couldn't. Like, it made her, like, there was a block. There's no way. It was so unbelievable to her that she couldn't even imagine it. And so instead of that, I sort of asked her this leading question. (laughs) And I said, you know, blah, blah, blah. Who's the first person you're going to tell when you lose 50 pounds? And she said, my mom. And I said, oh, cool. Like, what's that conversation going to look like? Where are you? Oh, I'm actually in my closet. What are you wearing? This red dress I just saw at the store two weeks ago that I'm dying to buy, but like it's, you know, a size X, Y, Z. Right. Really? That's so cool. Like, what does the room smell like? What are the sounds that are happening right now? What's your mom saying? How do you feel? She just visualized being 50 pounds lighter. And now her brain, like our brains kind of don't know the difference. Our neurons are going off about like what's real in real life mm-hmm. and what actually we're visualizing. So that's one, one reason why visual imagery is so powerful. It's sort of like when you watch Dancing with the Stars, your neurons in your brain don't actually know the difference between you actually dancing and you watching someone dancing, which is, comes back to sports psychology, like being able to visualize a shot or mm-hmm. you know, a stroke. Um, you're, you're actually putting your, your neurons are firing the same way they would if you actually did it. So we're already one step closer. She feels like it's one step closer to being believable because she's visualized it now using all her senses. And then, but in, in that moment, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're, you're pulling it out of her by saying, what is the root? Where are you standing? What are you smelling? Then what? So now she has an image. Okay. We always go back to the same thing. The red dress, the closet the way it smells, the phone ringing in the background. Like, so the more specific you are, the more senses you incorporate into your visualization or your visual imagery practice, the absolute better. And there's certain times when a third person visual imagery works better than like a first person. Um, They did this incredible study on voters and um, they sort of like asked a bunch of people, are you going to vote tomorrow? I think it was tomorrow. Maybe it was in a couple, I think it was the next day. And um, I might be botching like some of this a little bit in the details, but the gist is there. Um, and you could look up the study probably by just researching it, voters' visual imagery or something. Okay, I'll Google um, it later. Yeah. And it was like they had a group of people just say, I'm going to vote. And then they had a group of people that visualized in third person, like watched themselves voting. And the majority of people that actually voted the next day were the ones that visualized it from third person rather than the ones that just said, I will vote. Because they saw themselves voting, mm. they believed they would vote, and they almost like it was almost like they owed it to themselves because they already saw it mm. that they were accountable to do it, and they voted. And so, there's like a time and place for a lot of these different uh, ways uh, to use tools and visual imagery. And one of the things I'm super passionate about right now in bringing into visual imagery is the science behind using color as a tool in visual imagery. And I do that in all my visual imageries now. Like how? So, like, there's certain colors that, um, like, have been researched that uh, invoke certain behavior or emotions. So, give me some of those. Like, <laughs> yellow. What does yellow mean? What does blue yellow, mean? Yellow is a very happy, optimistic color. Orange. So, does that mean, I'm sorry not to interrupt you, but yeah. does that mean if someone likes yellow, 
or is it if they have yellow around them? Can mm-hmm. you be more, can you be more specific? Yeah. Um, to pick up. Yes. So I love this because I think it's so cool. I actually have, I call it a color sweep. If my clients want to work with color, I sort of, am like, I want you to do a color sweep all day today. I want you to write in your journal, like all the colors that are generally around you. Like, what do you have around you? And then we look at it and I ask them how each color sort of makes them feel. Like in the big places, like their bedroom, mm-hmm. um, their office, their car. Like where do they spend the majority of their time? We keep coming back to car because obviously we're in LA. <laughs> we spend a lot of time there. Um, or like their kid's room or the kitchen. Or, and it's fun because you can use it in two different ways. It's like either what colors are already around you. And so you start, sort of start to think like how are they making me feel and like, do I need to switch up? Like, is there another color that might be better for me to put around me? Well, if you're just saying yellow is very bright yes. or happy and positive, give me some other colors that what would define those. Like, wouldn't red mean blood or... No, so or... like red's a really powerful color. Okay. Um, so yeah, passionate. Okay. Um, you know, some people, like, I'm wearing a little red right now. Right. Um, Does that mean you have a lot of passion for me? Or what is <laughs> yeah, it, why I was you... like, ready for that. <laughs> that a... You know, it's funny. It's like, sometimes it's just not intentional, but you're drawn to certain right. things, right? Like, like I was just speaking earlier at, uh, upstairs with Amanda. Amanda. Amanda, yeah, sorry. Um, earlier about clothing and stuff. And like, I've always been really drawn to like neutrals and like black. I could wear black anytime, any day, and no matter how I feel. Me but too. there's certain colors that like, I start to realize when I'm like, I have to be in a certain vibe to like wear them. Or when I wear them, I feel a little different. Like I'm in What is black vibe. and gray? How about this? No. So black's not one of the colors that's really... Um, have a gray. in sort of a study, but like black to a lot of people. So a lot of this is also personal. Mm-hmm. Like how does black make you feel? Do you know? Thin. Like when you wear it. Thin. No. Okay, great. I'm yeah, not, like, I'm just kidding. Yeah, I don't, maybe. I mean, no, but I'm just, I don't like a lot of colors. Yeah. So I'm t- does that, what does that mean about But do you me? not like a lot of color generally or just to wear? Because we're just talking about what you like to no, wear. No, I think, um, but I, I think I like very neutral colors yes. in general. You're drawn to neutral colors. I'm very yeah. drawn to neutral or colors. Or like certain hues of colors. I like, like yellow you, though. Yeah. So yellow, yellow like really invokes, and they do a lot of these studies in mm-hmm. like um, the psychological study of like advertisement, obviously. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like you can imagine uh, yeah. brands have spent a lot of money a on this. A ton of money, yep. Um, but yellow, yeah, to come back to it, it's obviously one of my favorites to talk about because yellow is the color of optimism. It's really hopeful. It's new beginnings. It's, um, it's happy. Orange, again, is similar, but like what I love about orange in a more specific way is that it's more related to happiness in a social way. So like for some people that want to make a good impression socially or like they want to be more social or confident in a social setting, like orange is really like it draws people to you and it like kind of, it's it's meant to invoke in you like sort of this social confidence. Interesting. Yeah. What does gray invoke? So gray again is not, no, I mean like I think that's not really fair to say because sometimes gray can be like really clarifying, you know, for some people, but um or give clarity. Um, gray's not one of the like ones really studied per se. It's like a shade, I guess. How about blue? So blue uh, is blue is like very calming. Actually, it's a really good color to have, and it depends like what shade. And yeah. stuff. I'm gonna send you. Um, I'm gonna send you a color card after this, so you okay. can get more into it. So we don't have, like I. I can go through color. every color. Yeah, magenta. Yeah. How about yeah. this color? Yeah. So, um, but you're saying, but green is like grounding, and as you can, it's like earthy and like very. But I'll send you it, and you can share it with. I will. People. And then, would you say that that when you're talking about the colors, and are you saying that the the colors that people should want to be around or mm-hmm. like basically wear? Oh yeah. So if they saying, want to evoke a yeah, certain thing, so okay. like it can go both ways. Where I feel like it's a really cool tool. Like once you know about them, and if they confirm with you, 
Like you always want to check that. Sometimes people can have a random like this color makes me feel this because of an experience I had when I was a kid. Right. You know, like a lot of times, um, you know, we think yellow makes people happy also just because like people are happier in the summer. Mm-hmm. It's just like a proven, but to some people, like for me, maybe it's because I live in LA or again, maybe it's because I'm a highly sensitive person and I was just more <laughs> like kind of like that. I always felt so alive in overcast days, you know, like, I don't know, like something about the sun kind of depletes me. It makes me sort of tired. Whereas if there's an overcast day, like I felt the most creative. I always wrote the most in overcast days. Like it made me feel maybe because it made me emotional and they came out and I was able to like creatively, like just, I wrote the best on like overcast days. And I don't know, like maybe, but maybe if I lived somewhere like Seattle or London and there was like tons of overcast days, I may not feel that way. I was going to ask you about that. Was it, does there, is there personality types that go better? Like, what does that mean if you're happy on, on sunny days? Doesn't that mean, what, does that, does that have any kind of particular I don't know if it's, I mean, there's definitely, we can get into like seasonal affect stuff where there's real true, like research and science out there, there's actually like a disorder in the DSM, like seasonal affective no, disorder. That's, where like, that's what I think I have. Yeah, like when it does affect When it's overcast, you. I'm like depressed. Yeah. Well, you know what's really interesting? I always, like all my friends, even since I was a kid, they all knew this about me. Like when there's overcast days, they would like send me a picture, like even now and be like, you're kind of day. But recently we had a ton of rain in LA and I don't know if it's, things also have switched for me a lot since becoming a mother, but um, there was like three or four days, right? Of like heavy rain we just had mm-hmm. recently and it was gray and like literally by the fourth day, like I was feeling all these like just sadness and I like felt claustrophobic and I wanted to get out and I just, and then the first sunny day we had, I was like so happy. Right. And so I totally got it. Like I used to, I go to London a lot and um, I was always like, God, these like people are just not as friendly I felt like. But then right. when there's a sunny day and especially a Friday, people leave work early and they are like skipping. It's like a, it's like literally like a musical. Skipping to the pub <laughs> and like saying hello to you, like as you walk by, like strangers are saying hello to you, which doesn't really happen. I feel like there. Right. And I get it. Like I felt that finally for the first time wow. because we had like rain in LA, right? And I guess, which is rare. That's so funny. Right. I think that all the time though. I would think that's most people. Yeah, like, it is. It's absolutely most people. Yeah. Like we are very impacted by our environment, and as we should, we're living, breathing people living on a living, breathing earth, and. Like, of course, we're so connected. People forget how with one and connected we are with our physical environment. So then what, so do you have, you call, you, you, since you're a doctor, you, excuse me, you used to say patients, but now you say clients. Yeah. So we are meant to say patients in like a clinical setting. So when I worked at like the hospital or Cedars or UCLA, we say patients, but um, it's also like if you are a traditional therapist or psychologist, because there's a difference between therapist and psychologist. One's a master's, one's a doctorate, but um, they would call their private practice clients. If they were seeing someone in a hospital setting, it's a patient. So it's just like, I don't have patients anymore because I don't ever see people in hospitals. Right. Um, I just have clients. Right. And so so you said, like, so if someone came to you, you said they're more emotionally functioning uh-huh. and they were just sad, mm-hmm. you know, they didn't have anything really. Just, what, what do you say to them? They don't hate themselves. Mm-hmm. They're just like, kind of like, they're kind of like just operating at like at a six, mm-hmm. but they want to operate at a 10, mm-hmm. right? They're not sad. They're just complacent, I would mm-hmm. say. Let's say complacent. What's your, well, what's your there, recipe? Well, there definitely be like to each person is different. And right. the work and that I, I do that. definitely is 
like very, very personal and custom. Like I do not have a one size. I just don't even believe in one size fits all. And I agree with you, but I'm saying but, for the yeah. purpose of this type of show. Yeah, of course. What can we, what can we. Well, I think there's like one thing maybe. Teach. Um, and not even someone that's sad, just generally like maybe the question, do you think maybe like how can we increase our happiness or like how can we I'll increase optimism? Um, so there's all kinds of really cool, simple, free ways to increase happiness that have like a holistic and science-based evidence to it. And actually what I'm super passionate about, um, I love doing one-on-one sessions, but I know, you know, uh, that's part of my practice mm-hmm. or my work. I also like a huge other part is brand partnerships and speaking and more like workshops. Um, and so since that has happened, which I truly love and is a passion of mine, so I've made more space for it and I'm a mom. Um, I still pretty much like I do all my own naps and like I still put my kid to sleep myself and do his bath. So I don't really have – my private practice hours have become smaller, which yeah, just because means – because you're a mom. I get it. Yeah, and also I'm doing other things, which are also I'm passionate about in my work. Um, it used to just be private practice. Now it's a whole host of other things. And in some ways that's a great thing, but in other ways it's it's sad for me because it's kind of made things like a wait list happen and also my sessions are more expensive and I know that's not necessarily as affordable. So my big like – passion right now. Giving is, people easier. Oh, yes. man, okay. So what, yeah. give me some of these, how to increase someone's happiness. So I actually have a new, um, something coming out, uh, next month, which, um, is going to be a product that, uh, is literally just that it's going to be 52 different ways that you can in a moment increase your optimism and boost happiness. And so a couple of those I could talk about. Give me though. five. Um, can I give you three? Four. <laughs> I'm negotiating here. Yes. Um, deal. I thought you were a deal maker. I know. So you said you were. Um, totally. So I'm going to give you three. It takes one to know one. Four. Totally. Okay. <laughs> okay. You just so, met your match, lady. Totally. Yeah. Um, okay. So there's all kinds of things. Um, there's so much evidence out there. So this might be like a little of an action that's like a fake it till you make it. But there's all kinds of evidence out there, which um, I would be happy to dig deeper into if you want to. If anyone has questions about it, you can ask me. Um, but smiling. So mm-hmm. just the actual action of smiling, um, like it increases your immune system. Like there's emotional benefits, but I'm saying there's like also physical benefits. Mm-hmm. It reduces stress. Like they've done all these studies just from smiling. Oh, no, Literally if you didn't even this. mean it. Like uh-huh. just the act of smiling. So one of, the, one of the things you can do right now, like get up right now and smile. Go in front of a mirror and smile. And then like I urge you further for a better thing, which I love to call like a double joyful act, go outside right now to anyone and smile at a stranger. Like you've just smiled and done something, you will make them smile back and they've done something and you'll probably pass it on. So like smiling more. I know it's like sounds simple and silly, but like even just the act of like pursing up your lips. It does change the feeling of it does. does. It changes your posture. It It changes like your, and a lot of times what we need to do is change something physical. Mm -hmm. And I know like biofeed, all this stuff does that, but in order to to change something like in our brain, that's thoughtful because it's all connected. Um, I'm smiling now just to kind of joke around with you, but it makes a difference. Like I do feel happier. Yeah. Same. Um, and then laughing, by Five the way. Then. I'm laughing. <laughs> laughing is another, it just takes it to a whole nother level. I mean, people even from my culture, like there's like laughing and yoga. There's like laughing, you know, type yeah. of practices. But yeah, laughing is contagious. It, you can't be like upset and laugh. Like you just really can't. It's so true. It's hard to do two, two of those things at the same time. 
But um, another thing that's is a there little laughing more... classes or laughing? I've like... actually heard of these. There are like there's like yeah, laughing yoga. Like I see, I've seen it in India before for sure. I'm sure they've brought it here because everything has been brought here. That's right. <laughs> like goat yoga. The yeah, Washington totally. Be laughing yoga, right? Um, another thing is um, so I'm this like big proponent of. A lot of people in my space, or maybe more like coachy, um, I don't really know what space I'm in, sort of like I can tell you, world, you're an also, optimism yes, doctor. Thank you. <laughs> you're welcome. Um, so they'll say like, I get this question asked all the time, and I love it. It's a really good question, and especially on panels. It might have even been asked on the panel we were at, um, or we were on. But um, people are always like, how do you actually increase happiness or be optimistic in like the climate of the world and the society like that we're living in today. There's a right, lot no. of bad shit happening. Do you know who asked you that question? Who? My mom. Your mom was there? Yeah. And that she, was your mom? She asked you that. Because my mom was visiting me from Canada, where I'm from. That's so cool. And she, I didn't know that. Yeah. And I'll tell you something. She asked you that question because my mother is a pessimist. And she thinks that my head is in the clouds because I'm an optimist. So she wanted to like say, I'm going to ask the happiness <laughs> doctor about this. That's, I love that. That was your mom. I yeah, didn't even know that. I know. Surprise. That's so cool. Um, so I always give this like answer to that that is very probably different than what a lot of other people would say. I've heard a lot of people answer that with, you know, there's too much news out there. You need to tune out some of these negative things that are happening and right, sort of like right. turn a – is it the phrase like turn a blind eye? Or, turn a blind eye, yeah. yeah. And I actually – I feel the exact opposite. I feel like, um, well, the exact opposite, opposite, but with like a caveat. Um, I feel like it's really good to be informed and I like to be informed and I don't want to turn a blind eye because honestly, the things I visualize are probably, or make up in my mind when I'm anxious are probably far worse than even what's happening. Although you can give that comment a run for, for my money right now because right. there's a lot of really horrible things happening. Right. Um, it's true. And I think like being informed about them isn't necessarily the problem, but again, it's that idea of, the attention and the sort of like balance and how much we attention we put to those. And just think about the last time you put attention to something really happy happening. So my like, my answer to that is like, go out right now and seek more positive news. There is horrible things happening right now, but there's actually every day, the most amazing, incredible things happening that we just don't know of. And yeah. even if we knew of them in passing, we don't even put attention to them. Writing that down. So, so seek more positive news. Yeah. Like things happening around you or around your world that are positive. Like I, I read something the other day that was so cool. It was like, um, like the tigers in Nepal are like more than doubling every year. And we thought they were going to be extinct. So that's really cool. <laughs> you right? know what's really funny? You just said that. I had another girl on the podcast who was talking about how the tigers have now been, they went from having 5,000 to 2,500 and they're like a more distinct. And wow. That, in Nepal? Not in Nepal. Oh. I don't remember where she said they were, Okay, to be maybe it was a certain, another place. But yeah, like there is... It, it, well, that's good to know. So yeah. if you read that, if you read her news... Right. You, you can, can feel upset, really, And then we can read your totally. news and feel so much better. But you know what? I'm saying read both. Yeah. Read both. I'm just saying read <laughs> yeah. both. Like and get give, the positive. Start to get, give some more of your attention to the positive because I think it's really, we are just shifted towards that like when something it's it's the way our brain works but how about ignorant how about the whole phrase like ignorance is bliss yeah I'm not really like all for that but that's fine for some people I'm just not all for that I also think that's like 
what I get a lot of when people don't know how I'm referring to the term optimist or optimism, I get a lot of like, yeah, but I was told that pessimists are more realistic. And yeah, it's actually true. Yeah. There's a lot out there that pessimists are have, a, have more realism, but that's if you're comparing it to the type of optimist or optimism that some people define as just like wearing rose-colored glasses all the time, which right. I think is actually impossible and like show me a human that does that like a real human I know a lot of I know a lot of humans who are blissfully happy because they're dum-dums mm. I hate to say it I mean this is talk about being not PC mm-hmm. but a lot of times I feel like people what, what you don't know won't hurt you well and they walk around with blinders on well I mean like also show me a human that doesn't experience a negative emotion ever oh it doesn't you know, exist I mean, yeah they, of course they yeah do. of course but you're also saying like you don't you don't take you don't believe in the whole ignorance. Is no, I mean, I personally don't. And like, I, that's just my, I'm sure there's other people that think that's fine, but, um, I don't know. That probably comes from my half of me. That's like, so into like interested in knowing. See, I'm like yes, you, I'm, like I'm super curious and I'm and really, yeah, I'm really into science and right. I'm really into evidence-based. Like I want to know the truth. Right. And actually that makes me feel better. And, um, it's all about shifts and expectation and the allotment of attention. So attention, I think, is our greatest currency. Then give me one more to increase happiness. Okay, let's see. Um, you have 52. One that I want to have one more. I know. Well, I, I, they, are, they are all memorized in my brain somewhere, and I'm seeing <laughs> them, like, flip. I'm just trying to think of Visualize. one that might be interesting, good one. Oh, I got a great one. Okay, think about somebody right now that inspires you or has inspired you. And when we're done with this podcast, I want you to call them and tell them. That's a good one. Yeah. So it's this idea of gratitude. We all know gratitude, right? Mm, yes. Every It's a big word yeah, right now. Big, big word, right? So this idea of gratitude, there's like two things I want to say about that. Number one, amazing. So much research right now. Great research on gratitude. Like physical, emotional, so much research on gratitude. I almost feel like gratitude's the new mindfulness. You know, a few years ago, we had like so much amazing, great research done on mindfulness. Things like it was make you know, growing people's brains oil. and <laughs> <laughs> totally. Um, but I love gratitude. The one thing I will say to add to that is whenever people write gratitude journals, um, there's a lot of like external things in them. And there's been a lot of research done recently, which I was super excited to read and, and, and learn about that actually like one of the best ways that gratitude can help you um, is if you practice self-gratitude. So I would like to see more of you on your gratitude journals, like things that you are actually grateful for yourself, yourself for. So it's really important. It actually is, there's research that shows that uh, it increases potential and um, productivity. So like the more you want to actually like successfully uh, get through a goal or attain something, like practice more self-gratitude. And my favorite thing to talk about with that is, when is the, like, remember a time that you wanted or wished for something so badly that you currently already have today? No, because we never spend the time doing that. We wish, wish, want, work so hard to get something and then start wishing, wanting for the next thing. What about giving more time to the thing that you've already created and living right now that you wanted so badly? Right. We need to give more space to that because it actually makes us better at manifesting, um, quote, unquote, quote, unquote. unquote. Um, or realizing things. It makes us more productive. And then the second thing with gratitude that I wanted to say is, oh, you know, this idea that silent gratitude is lovely, like keeping gratitude to yourself, but loud gratitude is even better. So tell the person that you're grateful for 
it actually is another one of those like double joyful mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah. And I like the fact that you said self-gratitude because you're right. It's always about what you're grateful for, right. but not about what you are grateful for you for. Yes. And you are doing so much. And, you know, you've created so much. Like pretty much everything in your life you've worked hard to create for, like whatever it is. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I, I remember I was walking down the street with my husband and we were, this was when Jag was, I don't know, maybe like three months in, four months old, in, three months into living, <laughs> we got living you. on the earth, yeah. earth side. Um, and we were like arguing about something so stupid. I can't even remember what it was, but we were really arguing. And I was so mad with him, not my son, with I know, my husband. With husband. <laughs> I was You're so mad with him. three months old in. Yeah, yeah. three <laughs> months old in. I was so mad at him. And of course it was, we were in the throes of, you know, newbornness and like of course we were arguing like that's just what happens no sleep everything whatever and we were arguing so much everyone's been there we've all been there and like I just it was so crazy I had spent so many moments in my pregnancy I already had the stroller so I knew what it looked like I picked out the stroller my mother-in-law bought a stroller for us we put it together it was the only thing we had put together before Jag arrived because Jag came three weeks early and we had nothing done (laughs) I didn't have a hospital bag or anything but um um, by the way, all that planning is overrated. They have everything you need at a hospital yes. if you're having a hospital birth. But um, so I had FYI. spent all FYI. I had all I had spent so much time visualizing walking down our we live in the neighborhood of like the West Third area, mid city, and walking past all these restaurants and I'd seen it so clearly, like holding my husband's hand and the stroller down and whatever this baby was gonna look like and be like and feel like. And then like in that moment of arguing, I was just like, holy shit. Like I'm living this moment that I thought about so much and I'm arguing about something I don't even know what I'm arguing yeah. about. And I never have taken the time to like just have a moment or more to be like, I'm so grateful to me for what I have endured and mm-hmm. done to make this moment happen. Right, 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 right. Because you're so busy yeah. arguing over nonsense. And basically. probably like just thinking about the next thing I wanted. I you think know? that's so true. I think we all, I do that all the time. And then it's, I always catch myself after the fact and then I, I kick myself. Yeah. Like, I didn't like... I didn't treasure that moment. I wasn't in the moment. And that and that in itself is a work. It's a work. Totally. It's a work. It's work to do that. But I feel like everybody is a work in progress. And everybody like, is. That is the whole, that is life. That is life. And I think the more we realize that, like there is no such thing as destinations. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it sounds so cliche, but it's true. It's the process, the journey. You know, yeah. we hear these things. We hear and those too all the time. We hear those all the time. And it's kind of true. And the more you can, I mean, again, like what is happiness? It's sort of it's not a destination. It's like, you know, everyone has different ways of describing what it is, but like, you know, it's someone that, that, um, experiences pleasure and joy along the way, along the way, along the way, you know, it's this whole idea that, and, and you can change all of it too. So like, I think another thing is, you know, wherever you are right now, like find some solace and embracing the fact that like, it's not permanent. Right, everything's wherever temporary. you are. Yeah, I got five out of you, and you said you only want to do three. I think I gave I'm you a better six. deal maker than I think you. I, I think I may have given you six. <laughs> oh, fine, maybe five you're and a half. Really good deal maker. <laughs> See, I told you, you're you're barking up the wrong tree with this I know. one. Um, that's good though. Well, I'm a nerd about all this stuff. I could literally just keep it. No, keep I, it going. I love it. I think that's a good way to, to mm-hmm. end though. I think you gave some really great yeah. ways of people how they can implement or increase uh, increase their happiness and how they can implement those things into their lives because it's easy, it's tangible. Everyone can smile more. Yeah. Everyone can laugh a little bit totally. more and reach out to someone that they are, are inspired by um, and not to sweat the little things, basically, what we're yeah. talking about, too. I mean, 
And if you want to, if you, if people want to know more and kind of get more great insight from you, where can people find you? You can find me on Instagram <laughs> at the little at sign, um, Dr. <laughs> D-R, Deepika Chopra, D-E-E-P-I-K-A-C-H-O-P-R-A. Um, and my website, www.drdeepikachopra.com. I love interacting and saying hi. Like I'm literally a like proud nerd about all this stuff. Like I, I love it. I, I really like dig deep into it. So I love when people say hi and want to know more and I'm totally an available person on there to chat. And, um, yeah, you can email me on my website and email the office if you're interested in sessions or workshops or really exciting new stuff coming out like next month. These like fun little easy, tangible, powerful ways to increase happiness where you don't even need to book a session with me. That sounds amazing. Maybe I'll maybe I'll DM you. Yeah, <laughs> you can. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure and I'm so happy we finally made this happen. I so, am too. Thank you so much, Thanks new mom. Thanks for having me. Anytime. You're going to come you. back again. You Say better. hi to your mom for me. I definitely will. <laughs> Send her my way. I will. Oh God, she needs you. <laughs> Gosh. Bye-bye. Thank Bye. you. Bye. This episode is brought to you by the Yap Media Podcast Network. I'm Hala Taha, CEO of the award-winning digital media empire, Yap Media, and host of Yap Young and Profiting Podcast, a number one entrepreneurship and self-improvement podcast where you can listen, learn, and profit. On Young and Profiting Podcast, I interview the brightest minds in the world, and I turn their wisdom into actionable advice that you can use in your daily life. Each week, we dive into a new topic like the art of side hustles, how to level up your influence and persuasion, and goal setting. I interview A-list guests on Young and Profiting. I've got the best guests, like the world's number one negotiation expert, Chris Voss, Shark, Damon John, serial entrepreneurs, Alex and Layla Hermosi, and even movie stars like Matthew McConaughey. There's absolutely no fluff on my podcast, and that's on purpose. Every episode is jam-packed with advice that's gonna push your life forward. I do my research, I get straight to the point, and I take things really seriously which is why I'm known as the podcast princess and how I became one of the top podcasters in the world in less than five years. Young and Profiting Podcast is for all ages. Don't let the name fool you. It's an advanced show. As long as you want to learn and level up, you will be forever young. So join Podcast Royalty and subscribe to Young and Profiting Podcast or Yap, like it's often called by my Yap fam on Apple, Spotify, CastBox, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.